Charlotte Leslie. I'm the director of CMEC. Welcome to our podcast. Recently, Israel hosted the foreign ministers of four Arab nations, three of which have recently signed normalization agreements with Israel, also known as the Abraham Accords. One Arab leader who wasn't there was King Abdullah of Jordan, who pointedly made a visit to Ramallah in the West Bank to underline his message that there must be a two-state solution before he would consider signing a normalization agreement with Israel. This is important since Jordan was one of the first Arab nations to sign a peace agreement with Israel. With the world's attention focused almost entirely on Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, what bandwidth do world leaders have for the Palestine question? And what impact does the war in Ukraine have on the region and Palestine and Israel in particular? Here to discuss this is Chris Doyle. Chris has been the director of CARBU, the Council for Arab-British Understanding, since 2002 and is its lead spokesperson. Chris is a highly respected commentator on TV and radio and has appeared in front of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and the UN General Assembly. He regularly writes for the British and international media. An Arabist by education and background, he has organised and accompanied numerous British parliamentary delegations to Arab countries, including over 20 to Palestine. Chris, welcome. Thank you for having me. Chris, First of all, if I can turn to the thing on everybody's mind at the moment, Russia. What impact is the Russia-Ukraine war having on the Israel-Palestine situation? For most Palestinians and for most people in the region, they look at this uh, war on Ukraine and aggression. I think they are all sympathetic. They're sympathetic like we all are with what Ukrainians are going through at the moment. They do see it as uh, an illegal invasion, uh, obviously and clearly. And... Across the global south, there's a lot of sympathy. However, that is tempered by a very clear realisation that this is a war largely conducted by Western powers, NATO powers, a response to the war, that is, on very differing terms. Russia is being treated very differently. We see international law matters, that the acquisition of territory through force, occupation, these things now have consequences, that sanctions are being brought in, divestment, boycott that the International Criminal Court is now being supported to do an investigation into what's going on. Yet across the global south, they see this differing response to their crises, to their wars, whether it's in Syria, Libya, Yemen, Palestine, that international law hasn't always been applied with such fervour, that the International Criminal Court doesn't seem to have a role, for example, in Palestine, that refugees, are welcomed in the case of Ukraine. They're blonde, they're blue-eyed, they're acceptable, part of our culture. But if they come from Afghanistan, from Syria, they're treated differently and there's actually hostility. So they see this war as actually exposing a lot of double standards and inconsistencies, hypocrisy even, of some of these countries. And there is going to be a very bitter resentment if politicians here and in Europe and North America don't start to realize this and that they have to also apply the very same practices and responses as they've done in Ukraine to other conflicts to demonstrate that actually lives in these other countries from Afghanistan to Libya matter just as much and that we need to bring their wars to an end. We need to make sure that they have the freedoms to enjoy just as much as Ukrainians because otherwise there's going to be a lingering bitterness. And guess who's going to benefit from all of that? It's going to be those extremist groups like 
ISIS Daesh and Al Qaeda who will tap into that resentment. And having just come from the region, it's really clear talking to experts and politicians that those groups are not defeated. They're very much, in fact, resurgent. They're tapping into this bitterness. And Ukraine could all be part of that. And when grain prices go up and fuel prices go up and people lose jobs and can't feed their families, who are they going to start to, to blame for all this? I'm not sure that's going to be uh, clear at all. So we have to think, yes, we have to help Ukraine. We have to thwart Russian intentions in Ukraine. We also cannot forget these other conflicts and crises where millions and millions of people have suffered for many, many years, protracted conflicts, where we aren't some external observers. We've actually been participant in one way or another in these wars, either, for example, in the case of Yemen, through arming the major party to the conflict, Saudi Arabia, or, for example, in Syria, in quite polarizing terms and supporting opposition groups sometimes who weren't properly checked out and supporting opposition groups that perhaps didn't have much credibility actually on the ground against the brutality of the Assad regime. And, you know, Syrians will look at this as well and they say, well, hold it, for the last six or seven years, at least since 2015, we've been under Putin's bombs, attacks, that the Russian regime has used so many of the same sorts of military tactics and strategies that we're witnessing in Ukraine. So in the Global South, when they see that maternity hospital being bombed in Mariupol, well, they think of the ones that were bombed in Syria, so many health facilities bombed in Syria. They think of that in Gaza as well. White phosphorus was used in Ukraine. Well, Palestinians will say, we remember when white phosphorus was used in Gaza by the Israeli army, actually used on UN facilities, a UN school, and then the UN headquarters in January 2009. In the UN headquarters at the time, were people who were actually seeking sanctuary, civilians, protection. And yet the white phosphorus came down. And anybody who knows anything about white phosphorus is the most appalling weapon. The burns you get for it cut right through to the burns. It's worse than napalm. So we really have to address it. We cannot ignore how the West of the world is feeling about this, how they see it. Otherwise, when we go off begging, you know, various countries about we need more oil to be pumped, we need your support on this, they're not going to be quite as sympathetic as we might expect. I can see that, just going back a bit to something you said, I can see for perceptions of equivalence, I absolutely get the point you're making. I guess I'd just say that if you're going to talk about equivalence, particularly in the Yemen situation, recently we had Houthis firing missiles into Jeddah, and I suppose the equivalent would have been Ukrainians firing missiles into Russian territory uninvited. But you're saying that there's a perception of equivalence. Uh, there's a the point here is that we should have been more active in bringing that war in Yemen to a close. It's gone on now for so long. We have on occasions taken aside. We have frequently not done enough. We've been very blasé about allowing these conflicts just to continue and not really putting in the energies to end them. And without the appreciation, actually, that these continuing conflicts actually are a threat to us, that they do stimulate extremism. They are opportunities for these very groups we don't want to prosper. And they have become, of course, engines for major flows of refugees. 
And if people are concerned about the numbers of refugees coming into Europe, then they need to think about trying to end some of the drivers of this. And conflict is one of the principal ones. These people are fleeing for their lives, for the most part, in the most appalling circumstances. And we've been putting in Europe, we've been putting up barriers, walls, barbed wire fences. And this is noticed. People are taking the most dangerous routes to get into Europe, across the Mediterranean, across the Aegean, using people smugglers. They are desperate. This is what they've been experiencing for the last decade. So in all of these conflicts, we are not entirely blameless. You know, we haven't done enough. We have legal and historic responsibilities, not least as Britain. We know Yemen very well. We were there. We're the penholder of the Security Council. Have we really done enough? Have we really exerted every bit of energy to push some sort of resolution? I'm afraid I don't think we have. So you're saying the world's a lot smaller than we'd like to think and our responsibility and involvement is a lot more than we'd like to, to pretend and that not taking an action is in itself taking an action which has consequences which we're facing. Absolutely, or else you can just accept that and say, okay, this is our neck of the woods, we're going to get involved here, but don't then think that the rest of the world is going to love you for it or welcome it or join you and uh, vote the right way or, or do what you want. You can't have it both ways. And I think that we do live in a world, whether you like it or not, where we do intermingle and we trade and we have all sorts of communities with backgrounds from different parts of the planet. And it will be felt here that these tensions will be seen in our universities and so forth. And these conflicts really are impacting us here. Another school of thought would say that we haven't actually implemented international rule of law enough in the Russia-Ukraine situation. Russia has patently committed war crimes. The nuclear deterrent turns out to be something that we are frightened of them using and we, we begin to say, don't worry, whatever you do, we won't use ours because we're frightened of World War III. And that the rule of law is nothing unless it's enforcement. And people like Garry Kasparov are saying we need to implement rule of law more strictly in this situation. What would you say to that perspective, that we're actually, we're not implementing international rule of law anywhere, and that's causing confusion. And whether that in itself would incite and encourage other hostile state actors and terror groups to say, well, look, the West doesn't really want to implement international rule of law, so it's a free-for-all. We've recently seen North Korea up its activities. We've seen Iran targeting embassy in Iraq. Do you think there's also that side of the coin? Are we getting it wrong on both sides again? I think in the case of Ukraine, what we've seen is both. In 2014, with the Russian occupation and annexation of Crimea, there was some response, but it was woefully insufficient. There were sanctions. There were sanctions within days from the European Union, but I don't think it was powerful enough, and we fell away and we dropped off the case. And we didn't respond, I think, properly in terms of what Russia has done, for example, in Russia with the assassination of Litvinenko here in London. You know, the use of the most toxic substance known to man, and then, of course, Salisbury. So I think we have let the Putin regime get away with too much. That said, I think since the invasion of Ukraine, there has been this sudden shift, all of a sudden, to suddenly finding that, oh, international law really does matter, that... Actually, the ICC and Britain now is funding an investigation, has given a million pounds towards it. That matters. We've imposed really quite punitive sanctions. Of course, then there is the argument of should we, for example, be banning sales of Russian gas and oil. 
but certainly we have seen a, a massive surge in sanctions and divestment. I mean, most Western companies have stopped doing business in Russia. We have seen sometimes it actually going too far. You've seen the way in which Tchaikovsky can't be played anymore. So it's become absurd. And I think this is something actually people in the Middle East that perhaps don't live in democracies really get this, perhaps more than we do here. The difference between the regime, the Putin regime, the cronies that benefit from him and ordinary Russians. Because if you are a Syrian, you do not wish to be defined by Bashar al-Assad or his father. If you are living in some dictatorship, you don't want to be defined by their behavior. So they understand that ordinary Russian civilians are caught up in all of this and that we need to be demonstrating to them that it's not about antipathy towards Russians, it's about the behavior of the regime and those around it. And I'm not sure that that distinction has always been quite clear enough. It's why I think that we have to be very careful with those cultural boycotts that we send the wrong message. It's also an issue with sanctions. It's an issue with sanctions because when you impose really tough, stringent sanctions, before long, it's not those people around Putin who are going to feel the heat. It's going to be ordinary Russians who are going to struggle to, to feed their families. And we've seen this. We saw it in Iraq. Saddam Hussein's regime adapted to the sanctions. In fact, they make money out of it. They make money through smuggling, creating false documents and smuggling of drugs. It's happening in Syria. The sanctions on the Assad regime. Frankly, right now, the economic meltdown in Syria is being felt by ordinary Syrians who are no party to the conflict and the abuses. Is there a mistake that the West or democracies make in assuming that, like a democratic leader, dictatorial leaders actually care about the welfare of their people and that their legitimacy somehow depends upon how happy their people are? Is that why the West tends to think that maybe punishing the normal person may be a tool to get rid of an even worse evil that's a dictator? Is that part of the reason we end up with sanctions like that? I think sometimes sanctions isn't you know, easily adopted tool. And when you don't want to uh, get into a, a war, and clearly NATO states don't want to get into a direct confrontation with Russia, and they didn't want to over Syria either, that actually introducing sanctions is a sort of a bit of a cop-out sometimes. And I remember going to various summits where on Syria and there would be another round of sanctions. They'd find somebody else to sanction just so they could go out to a press conference afterwards and say they're doing something when actually it wasn't really materially changing the situation on the ground. So I think we have to be careful about how far sanctions go. And sanctions must always be reviewed. What are the aims of the sanctions? And really importantly, and I'm not sure we know this, if the aim of sanctions is to change the behavior, alter the behavior of the target regime. What does that regime specifically have to do for those sanctions to be eased? If the targeted entity doesn't know that, then I think you have a problem because very soon they start to believe those sanctions are there forever and that there is nothing they can do to get rid of them. And there's no point in changing. And therefore, they will adapt. They say, okay, there's no point in negotiating or getting into any track about the sanctions. We'll look elsewhere. That happened with the regime of Saddam Hussein. I think it's happening in the case of Syria. And they don't see any way to get rid of those European and American sanctions. So they'll do more business with China. They'll do more business with Iran. They will look elsewhere. And of course, there always are some places they can do 
business. So sanctions, I think, should be understood. Yes, they're important, but they have their limitations as a policy tool. I'm Charlotte Leslie, Director of CMEC, and I'm talking to Chris Doyle, who is the Director of CARBU, the Council for Arab-British Understanding. Chris, before we look more specifically at Israel and Palestine and how the conflict is affecting the, the politics and lives there. We've talked about Syria quite a bit. Can I briefly just go back to that moment in 2013 where Obama put down a red line and through a sequence of reasons that are familiar to us now, we backed off that red line and it became a kind of pink splodge on our uh, rule of law landscape. What did you see the impact of that step back to be in the region? And what impact did it have, if any, on the notion that the West implements international rule of law and sticks by its word? I think perhaps the biggest impact was actually what we are seeing now. It's the lessons that Vladimir Putin took from it. And I think it was deeply unfortunate that that sort of language was used and then not enforced. But also the obsession with chemical weapons. Don't forget that the Syrian regime was busily killing hundreds of thousands of civilians using conventional weapons and we were doing nothing. So I think there was another issue there in terms of the failure to end what was going on. I think also with 2013 there was a lack of clarity as to what any, any intervention was actually going to mean. Was it going to be some sort of punitive raid on the Assad regime just to sort of send a message, we don't like you using chemical weapons? Or at the other end of the scale, was it going to be a military operation for a regime change? But whatever, we failed to honour that red line. And the likes of Putin, likes of various other countries and dictatorships saw this and read this as weakness. They saw this as the West no longer prepared to stand up for its own values and international law. And this has continued, and I think it's now sort of somewhat of a surprise to see all of a sudden Europe and the United States acting in concert. And there was a bit of a misread, I think, in much of the world that somehow the United States was now really weak over the last five, six years. Well, that weakness was more as a result of a policy, a policy inertia of not getting involved. But of course it remains the dominant military power on the planet, the major global economic power. And now that you see Europe and the United States working far more together, okay, not perfectly, then I think you don't see this sort of weakness. And a lot of powers in the region miscalculated. They thought somehow that Russia was the resurgent power and strong. Well, actually, its economy is not much bigger than Spain's. It's military, not actually quite, yeah, it's large, but not quite as powerful and sophisticated as many made out. And we're seeing that in Ukraine. We're seeing them coming into problems with that. The Russians tested their weapons in Syria, and they used that to try to market weapon sales. Well, yes, they were used there, but they weren't used it in a contested environment. It was a turkey shoot. It was, can you hit a building 50 miles away? They didn't have to encounter any real opposition. There weren't any anti-aircraft missiles of any capabilities there. So they weren't tested. But we did nothing, and that is the message that most of the region took. And can I ask, even if Russian capability isn't quite what it might seem to be, is Russia seen as a more dependable partner and ally 
from the region's perspective. This was something that many powers noticed, the sort of sense that you had, of course, such a seismic change in the nature of American administrations between Obama and Trump, such a sea change in policies, that the inconsistency in the US approach became a challenge for a lot of these countries. And even now, of course, we're not sure what's gonna happen in 2024, whether you're gonna have a, a Republican administration very much in the mold of Trump or with Trump himself. So they're not sure what to expect from the United States. But with Russia and China, there's this degree of understanding where they're coming from. And of course, they don't raise these tricky issues of, of human rights, rule of law, and so forth. That said, they need also to realize that, as we see in Ukraine, just to the extent that Putin looks after his own interests, and he will ride roughshod over anybody who is in his way. So they may think that the US has, and Europe hasn't been as dependable as Russia, but when Russia wants to go its own way, it will be ruthless in pursuing its own interests. Don't forget, for example, that Russia has a very strong alliance with Iran on Syria, be it with some differences. That's not necessarily pleasing all the various powers in the Middle East either. So I think they should be a little bit more cautious in terms of looking to Moscow, at least, in terms of their future security needs. We've talked very globally about the situation. Can we zoom in a little bit more on Israel and Palestine? From a layman's perspective, in a sense, Israel's position has been somewhat unclear and a little confusing. Can you outline where Israel is with its relationships with Russia and what it has to balance? Well, Israel is one of those powers with strong relations with both Russia and Ukraine. And the former Prime Minister, Bibi Netanyahu, had very close relations with Vladimir Putin. He used to visit Moscow a great deal. And also Naftali Bennett, the current Prime Minister, likewise. And actually you see this working out in Syria where Israeli strikes on Hezbollah targets, on Iranian targets, happen with regularity, even though Russia has an airbase, a Hamamim airbase, with S-400s, with S-300s, which aren't deployed. And it's actually something the, the Syrian regime is, is upset about, the Iranians are upset about, because they know that the Russians could thwart, to a great degree, Israeli attacks on Syria. It hasn't happened. Now, Israel wants to maintain that freedom of manoeuvre in Syria because its red lines in Syria are about not wishing to see massive Iranian military bases cropping up, the transfer of high-tech weaponry to Hezbollah and the like. So they have their interests, they want to maintain that. So, of course, they worry that if they take too strong a line with the Russians right now over Ukraine, that they will have that issue. However, what is happening on the ground in Syria, we've already seen some uh, withdrawal of Russian military police from the south. It's quite possible we will see less Russian presence within Syria if we see some of these forces returning to Russia, even obviously going in, into Ukraine. But they also have strong links with Ukraine too. And they're going to be taking in a lot of Ukrainian Jews, as indeed they took in a lot of Soviet Jews in 1991 after the fall of the Soviet Union. And of course they're going to have those two communities. There's a lot of Israeli Jews who came from these countries as well who are citizens and living there. So they have interests. That said, their major partner is the United States. And the United States, given huge amounts of military aid, economic aid, diplomatic support that it gives to the state of Israel and has done for so many decades, 
is expecting Israel to be supportive. And it made various requests of the Israeli government, including to deploy various anti-aircraft, anti-missile capabilities, and that hasn't happened. The votes this the United Nations as well. So Israel is in this very delicate position. Naftali Bennett attempted to act as a mediating force, but that hasn't worked out. So it demonstrates also that perhaps Israeli interests and American and European interests don't always ally. And we've seen this in the past. I mean, we've seen Israeli transfer of high-tech American tech to the Chinese, which has angered the United States. So Israel doesn't always have those interests. Um, you know, there isn't necessarily the same, and we have to understand that. Charlotte Leslie, Director of CMEC, and I'm talking to Chris Doyle, who is the Director of CARBU, the Council for Arab-British Understanding. Looking at how the Israel-Palestine situation might emerge through all this, is there any room at the moment for any movement on that at all? I mean, it's notable that four foreign ministers of Arab nations went over to Israel and, and are talking. How are the Abraham Accords going to be affected by this? What's, what's the situation, what's the landscape for an Israel-Palestine two-state solution? There simply is no expectation amongst either Israelis or Palestinians that there's going to be any political progress on any peace track. There isn't one at the moment. There's very little sign of agreement between the two sides. In fact, what we are seeing at the moment with April is the conjunction of Ramadan, Passover, Easter, plus the anniversary of last year's conflagration over Jerusalem, which has made all sides extremely nervous. We could see a huge flare-up. The tensions are very, very high, not least in Jerusalem. It's what the Jordanians are really concerned about. I spoke about this with the Jordanian foreign minister very recently. And they see that it really wouldn't take very much to set off another really horrific conflagration with loss of life. No, what we are seeing is really the strengthening of occupation, the strengthening of the system of discrimination that exists out there, settlement building, demolitions. Palestinians feel there isn't really an horizon for them. They are also massively frustrated with their own leadership in Ramallah and also the Hamas leadership in Gaza. They don't in any way appear to be working for them. Those who wish to have talks are undermined because there doesn't seem to be a basis for that. We're in a situation when people talk about a two-state solution and what we're seeing on the ground is the effective annexation of huge chunks of the West Bank. Palestinians think, well, where is this state? Instead, actually, what we're seeing is a one-state reality with massive discrimination, and it's why the global human rights and community, from Palestinian rights groups to Israeli human rights groups to the major international human rights groups to the UN Rapporteur on Human Rights, are saying that this is a system of apartheid. And I suppose the, the shorthand describing that is that if you are an Israeli Jew, you enjoy superior rights to any Palestinian counterpart, be they a Palestinian citizen of Israel or a Palestinian living in East Jerusalem or in the rest of the West Bank or in the Gaza Strip. Varying degrees of rights, but always that Israeli Jewish citizen has superior rights. And there's a chasm between what some leaders in the international community are saying and talking about the two-state solution and what is happening on the ground. That divide is, is just so massive. The reality is that in areas of Jerusalem, the Palestinians, the plans are to f force them out, particularly around the old city. 
through forced dispossession, demolitions, creating a situation of, of a hostile environment, that is a recipe for disaster. Often people say that, you know, are you a friend of Palestine? Are you a friend of Israel? And I, I think most people who I've encountered in that region would say I'm a friend of peace and I'm a friend of being able to live my life fairly and with equity. How is this situation of deep inequity affecting the population? Is it becoming more polarised on each side? Or is there a new generation who do want to heal over the wounds? How is it affecting the people? We talked earlier about separating regimes from people. What are the, how are the people well, feeling? In 30 years of visiting Israel and the occupied territories, the one thing you've seen is actually the complete separation of the two peoples. Now, if you go back to the early 90s, you could drive from Gaza, you could drive through Israel as a Palestinian into the West Bank. You had Palestinian citizens of Israel shopping in, in the West Bank. You had 100,000 Palestinian workers from Gaza going to Israel every day working for Israeli employees. The interactions were extraordinary. You could actually argue the Palestinians probably knew the Israelis better than anybody else. They would often speak Hebrew. Since particularly around about 2000 and the Second Intifada, what you have seen is separation. This was a deliberate Israeli policy, by the way. It included building the separation barrier and wall. It included the way in which Israeli citizens were banned from going into Area A, Palestinian citizens, and not taking any workers in from Gaza. So now, for Palestinians, the only Israelis they see are Israeli soldiers or Israeli settlers. Frequently, those settlers are engaging in brutal violence against them, harassment, harassment of their school children. That, according to all the human rights reports, has got worse and worse. They act with not just with impunity, but with actually the support of the apparatus of the Israeli state. So we are seeing, actually, the barriers to those parties engaging. And of course, you're not looking at engagement between two equal peoples. The difference here is an Israeli citizen enjoys all the benefits of a first world life. They can travel anywhere in the world. They have a passport. Palestinian has to have Israeli permission to leave their village town. The Palestinian president cannot leave Ramallah without Israeli consent. There are Israeli checkpoints that could say you can't leave today. They are under occupation. So to ask them, in a sense, to engage with Israelis in this completely unequal footing is problematic because they have a completely different experience. For most Israeli citizens, particularly since that second intifada, the issue of the Palestinians is something they don't want to deal with anymore. It's not an issue at Israeli elections. The only time that they address this situation is when there is violence. When you see rockets and mortars being fired out of Gaza, a war crime, wrong, then they, of course, demand that government to take action. But they are completely silent on the policies of occupation and discrimination. They don't want to see it. They're not trying to find ways to bring that to an end. That's also very dangerous for the future. And unless Israel understands that occupation is actually a security threat to them, Maintaining that hold over millions of people who don't want you there is actually undermining their security, their standing. And let's look at Ukraine. We see a Russian occupation of Crimea, areas of eastern Ukraine, followed by the invasion. Palestinians say, we've been occupied, 
for 54 years. 54 years living in the West Bank under military law where our kids go to military courts, where we have all these checkpoints and far zones, military areas. We see Ukraine. The international community is saying that the occupation is wrong. They talk about the importance of sovereignty and so forth. So why not for Palestinians? You see also, for example, Ukrainians now bravely fighting Russian forces. We see clips on our media of young Ukrainians preparing Molotov cocktails. Which is the best beer bottle to use? When Palestinians dare to confront Israeli soldiers who are occupying their lands, demolishing their homes, and who might dare to use a stone, rock, and throw those at Israeli soldiers, is there the same reaction? They're labelled as terrorists, will appear in a military court. Sometimes they may not even get to a trial, and we say nothing. Now, I'm not saying that Palestinians should use Molotov cocktails. Who wants to see violence and so forth? But the flip side of that is we should be insisting that that occupation comes to an end. Occupations are meant to be temporary in international law. 54 years is not temporary. Palestinian children haven't seen anything else but occupation. Palestinian kids in Gaza this century have experienced roughly about six wars against them. The only planes they see are Israeli fighter jets. They haven't left Gaza. Most Palestinians in the West Bank can't even go to Jerusalem. Yet we say very little. And as you say, that is hardly an environment to foment understanding and to provide an environment where you can begin to build bridges and build peace, particularly from the Palestinians' perspective. Well, you can't really build peace. It's like asking somebody, squatters in your house, to go and have peaceful relations whilst they're still squatting. The Palestinians want to have peaceful relations, but we have to understand that the end goal of this is the end of that occupation. Israel refuses. Israel has lots of demands of the Palestinians to enter into talks, preconditions to enter those talks. Palestinians can't put a precondition of, no, Palestinian state on 1967 lies, thank you very much, in the end of occupation. That's not acceptable. But why is that unacceptable? It should be absolutely understood that that has to be the end goal. Many international leaders right now are saying, we can't go soft on the Russians, they've got to leave Ukraine. Palestinians are saying, well, you shouldn't be soft on the Israelis. They have to leave our lands. It's not happening. And the double standards, I'm afraid, and the hypocrisy is understood, if not in Europe, but certainly across all the Middle East, the Islamic world. And in fact, actually, it's understood by a lot of, of people here, which is why it is resented, because they see this double standards. They see that we're not applying our own rules to the situation. Equitably. Absolutely. So you I know, guess you're, you're arguing for we wouldn't ever question the, the right for the state of Israel to exist, but I guess what you're arguing for is an enlightened self-interest for the state of Israel to be able to exist more equitably with its neighbours, and its current policy at the moment is a security risk for the state of Israel and should be of concern to anyone who is concerned for Israel, as well as its neighbourhood and the Palestinians. Absolutely. Israel exists and it should enjoy its own security and peace with its neighbours, but Whilst it occupies other territories and still occupy the Golan Heights, Syrian territory as well, occupation and peace doesn't go together. And Russia is possibly going to find out what it's going to be like to try to hold down territory where the people don't want it. And Israel is trying to hold down territory where Palestinians don't want them to be there. It may not be the same in terms of scale and so forth, but the principle is very clear. And when we look at peace, we've got to get the right fundamentals in place if we're going to be serious. It's not negotiations between two equal parties. 
It's a negotiation between the occupier and the occupied. And the role of the international community, actually, we have a legal obligation to ensure that occupation ends, that the laws of wars are enforced, and that those people actually living under occupation who should be benefiting from the laws of war, the fortune of convention and so forth, are not. We are failing them. For a politician who says, look, Chris, what you say is, is maybe it's right, but look, I've got to look after my own country and we have got our own self-interest. What would you say was the self-interest argument for equitably applying the rule of law for a British politician who has a domestic audience to look after? I think uh, the whole situation in Ukraine has demonstrated it in bucket loads that the foundation of international law is the non-acquisition of territory through force. And if you don't apply that, then all sorts of various powers, China, mm. Russia, Israel, Iran, will see this as an opportunity to say, right, well, this doesn't apply and maybe we will help ourselves to areas of territory that we've had our eye on. I mean, Iran has its eye, you know, is the Emiratis will tell you they still occupy th three islands in the, in the Gulf. Bahrain has fears about Iranian intentions towards Bahrain. Of course, historically, we had the situation of Iraq invading Kuwait. So if you don't stick up for these sorts of principles, then you have the law of the jungle. Is that really where we want to live? We need an international rules-based order. Yes, okay, the one that's existed since 1945 may be out of date, and there's a lot of debate about that. But that principle where you don't go in and settle your differences through the use of force, I can't see how that isn't maintained as the essential foundation of how we wish to move forward. And it is why you see this unity in Europe and the United States against what Russia is doing in Ukraine. And as I said before, it's our failure to have stood up for that earlier that has actually led Vladimir Putin to believe that he could get away with it in Ukraine. And it's great to see that now leaders are sticking up for that, and they should do in other situations with equal vigour, with equal determination, with equal clarity. Transparency and fairness. Absolutely. I've been speaking with Chris Doyle, Director of CARBU, that's the Council for Arab-British Understanding. Chris, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.